beautiful anthem. Um, just a couple of quick announcements to bring to your attention. Uh, Nick and Kelsey are having a baby and their wedding shower is down in the gym at two o'clock today. Um, and so, did I say that right? Whatever. I, I knew I was going to get that wrong. But a baby shower. And so there's some, there's some announcements out in the lobby you can pick up, uh, find out uh, whatever you need to know about that. And then also, um, there's an, one of our small, we have a couple of new small groups, but one of them is meeting this evening at the home of the Dempseys. And if you'd like to jump in, I'm actually leading that group. Uh, we're looking at Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures, and we had a great time. It's just our second meeting, so if you want to jump in and be a part of one of our home groups, that's an opportunity. There's lots of other ones. Just lob me an email. Tell me I would like to be a part of one of the home groups, and we'll get you plugged in there. My cell phone number's in the bulletin. Um, and then lastly, uh, next Sunday, Dr. Jim Donovan is going to be here. Myself and my family, we're traveling up to Kentucky. We're going to go look at Noah's work, the ark, right? And so we've never been up there. We've always wanted to go see that. So we're going to go see that next weekend. So Dr. Jim Donovan, who has preached here for me before, will be here um, uh, next weekend. And so we're excited to have him come and share with our congregation. Um, our text for today comes from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, and then verse 19. Here we go. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You may be seated. Thank you so much. So uh, Peter is opening up um, a section here about persecution. Um, and we know in the first century that the church experienced a lot of persecution. And he actually begins this dialogue uh, in chapter 3 and verse 8 all the way through the end of chapter 4. So there's 35 verses here, a chapter and a half of verses uh, out of only five chapters in this letter where Peter dedicates to this topic of the persecuted church, of Christians experiencing persecution. And so I want to go back, before we get to the verses that we just read, I want to go back to some of the earlier comments, earlier statements that Peter had made, had made along these lines of persecution. So if you would, flip back with me in your Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen, to 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. Peter writes, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, Peter is actually quoting here from Psalm chapter 34. And in Psalm chapter 34, the psalmist David is acknowledging that sometimes bad things happen to God's people uh, because of their faith in Christ. And so this should be a statement of encouragement uh, that those who are living in obedience to God, that God is watching what's happening. God's eyes and his ears are attuned to you when you're living in righteous ways. And then the reverse of all that, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now the question arises, um, is, this, is this typical? Like do, do the righteous always um, have the eyes of the Lord upon them and therefore uh, experience his blessings in their lives? How do we understand that? Because that's really not the way the world works, right? Uh, when we're living in this world and bad things happen, and we begin to ask the question of the psalmist, are, like, are you clued into reality? 
do you, don't you know that, that bad things happen in our lives? And so that raises the question of how do we explain bad things happening in, to, to good people? How do we explain bad things happening specifically, more specifically, to God's people? Because it seems to me more like, as I observe life, the unrighteous are the ones who prosper. And it seems like the unfaithful are the ones who uh, you know, get, all the, get all the goods. Um, and so how do we explain bad things happening to God's people? Well, number one, I'm just going to give you three reasons here. Because number one, we live in a fallen world. That's part of why bad things happen to God's people. As citizens of this world, we can expect that we will experience the evil that this world has to offer. We live in a fallen world. We will experience suffering. We will experience disease and illness and accidents and heartache and pain and the collapse of government and the evil at the hands of depraved rulers. Why? Because we are citizens of a fallen world. That's the first reason why bad things perhaps might happen to God's people. A second reason why bad things happen to God's people is because sometimes God has purposed that bad stuff in order to grow us and to mature us in our faith in him. In other words, God is using the difficulties in our life to grow us up in our faith in him. You know, no one in the history of the world, think about this, no one in the history of the world ever became more mature through success. Like success is not the, not the sieve that people go through in order to become stronger, in order to become more mature. Rather, it's difficulty, it's adversity, it's trouble, and it's learning how to overcome those things that produces maturity in us. That is what puts muscle on bones. No one uh, on the, I don't know how Georgia, you want to talk about Georgia football last night, but anyhow, none of the guys who are out there on the offensive line or out there on the defensive line that have all those big muscles got all those big muscles just by looking at the weights, right? They had to go into the weight room. They had to sweat it out. They had to gut it out day after day, hour after hour, spending all this time, and that is what puts the muscle on the bone. And so the same thing when it comes to life. What puts the muscle, the maturity in you and I is when we experience difficulty and adversity. So explanation number two, why bad things happen to, good, to God's people, is because God is using those things sometimes and those trials to develop us into more mature followers of Christ. <clears throat> number three, the third and final reason why bad things happen to God's people is because sometimes God needs those things to happen in order to accomplish his will. In other words, the, these bad things have come into my life because God is going to use that to bring glory to himself. He's going to use that to become some sort of a, a testimony, if you would, to the world. <clears throat> For example, was it fair that Peter would be crucified upside down? Think um, the, all that this guy had done for Christ. Was it fair that the other apostles, minus John, would have had their heads cut off or be buried, burned alive? Especially when you consider all that they had done for Christ. Um, and so you think to yourself, you know, I'm going to serve the omnipotent, all-powerful God of the universe, the omniscient God of the universe who saw all this coming, and he couldn't do anything to stop it. He couldn't do anything to prevent it. Well, sometimes that's the way things go. Was it fair that Jesus, the innocent, spotless Lamb of God, would die a criminal's death? No, it wasn't fair, but it was necessary. My point is that sometimes the bad things that happen, happen because God needs those things to happen in order to accomplish his greater plan that's bigger than just your life or mine, his greater plan, his purposes in the world. Look at verse 14. Uh, Peter continues, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, notice the presence of that clause, but even if. Peter is acknowledging here that, look, God's eyes and his ears are upon us, and he's blessing the righteous, but sometimes, sometimes, those bad things do come into our lives, 
And so Peter's acknowledging that, that despite the omnipotence of God, despite the fact that the eyes and ears of God are trained on the righteous, Peter is acknowledging that suffering for being a Christian is still very much a possibility. Peter, as the head of the church, would no doubt have heard of the news of the martyrdom of Matthew down in Ethiopia, as Matthew had traveled down there to share Christ in North Africa. Peter, as the head of the church, would have heard the reports of the death of Bartholomew and and Philip in East India and Mongolia as they were carrying the gospel out toward the east. He knew about the deaths of James, his dear friend and his fellow fisherman of a lifetime, the deaths of Stephen and his own brother Andrew, the imprisonments of countless Christians thrown in jail simply for professing the name of Christ. The fact of persecution was not lost on Peter. And so Peter says, despite the omniscience and the omnipotence of God, persecution in this life is a very real possibility. Peter does not invite his audience to seek it, nor does he ask us to yearn for it, but they have to know that if they build their lives upon what God thinks, in a world that does not accept this, that persecution will result. Peter says, verse 14, even if that happens, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, he concludes, you will be blessed. Now, what in the world is Peter talking about? How can me experiencing persecution, those early Christians being thrown in jail and worse, how can that be a blessing in their lives? Well, Peter is merely quoting what the Lord Jesus himself said. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And we say, how in the world is being reviled and persecuted and having people tell lies about me make me a blessed person? Well, keep reading. Verse, the next verse, verse 12 says, When all that terrible stuff happens, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. In other words, yes, the eyes and ears of God are trained upon you, and he is taking notes on what it is that is happening to you and what it is that you are enduring through. And as God is taking notes, when you arrive on the shores of heaven, friends, your reward in heaven will be waiting for you there. And so Peter, here in 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 14, is merely relaying the promise that Jesus made, that even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Why? Because what Jesus said, great is your reward in heaven. We skip ahead into the letter. Peter continues with this same theme of persecution. It's the verses that we read earlier. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening. Verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. Last verse, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
I got a slide for you here. This is a timeline of when Peter writes these words. I shared this, I think, back at the very beginning of uh, when we were looking at Peter's letter. And so you can see there the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension back in 33 AD. There's debate among scholars whether it was 31 or 33. Anyhow, we're right in that window there. Um, and then if you continue on down the timeline, you see the time when Peter writes this letter, sometime in either 63, late 63, or early 64 AD. Well, there's a date that um, appears, I don't have the full date, but it's July 19th of 64 AD. And this is when Nero burned down Rome, or half of the city. Um, Nero, had, there were some slums that existed on the backside of Nero's palace, and he wanted to clear those out but he didn't have the right to just go in there and bulldoze that area. So he had somebody accidentally, a fire occurred. And unfortunately, though, what happened was not only did those slums burn, but also half of the city of Rome burned. Um, now, Nero is not, um, he was an authoritarian government, we might say, for sure, or a leader. Nevertheless, he still couldn't govern people that wanted to rebel against him. I mean, he just burned half the city down. And so he needed somebody to take the blame. He needed somebody to take the fall for this fire that occurred. Um, and so what he did was he knew the Christians weren't really well liked, didn't have the best reputation around town. Um, and so he said, well, the Christians were the ones who started this fire. The Christians were the ones who wanted to take out and hurt the citizens of Rome. And so the, the, the Roman people went along with that. They believed that that was right. And there was a public outcry that re resulted. People wanted the Christians rounded up and punished. And so that's what happened. The Roman Empire began to systematically persecute Christians in 64 AD. It started in Rome and it bled out into the rest of the Roman provinces. The leader of the Christians, the Apostle Peter, was rounded up, tried, crucified upside down in 65 AD, less than a year after the burning of Rome. I got a picture here. I'm not sure who painted that, that painting, but anyhow, some of y'all can maybe let me know after service. Um, but they, there's, there's Peter being crucified upside down. This is the, and the spot where this actually happened is what is called St. Peter's Square. That's in the heart of the Vatican today. Um, other leaders were rounded up, thrown into prison, thrown into the gladiators arena, and publicly murdered for sport. Still other Christians were impaled on posts around town, covered in pitch and tar. Got a couple of little pictures that depict that. Uh, and then lit on fire. And so, again, all of this is the Romans' response to their hatred of Christians because they thought the Christians were the ones who burned half of their city to the ground. Um, and so here is Peter writing in late 63, early 64 A.D., less than half a year out from this fire being started. Um, and basically, he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, preparing the church for the days that are ahead. Look at verse 12 again. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knows that there are some dark, dark days ahead for the Christians living in the Roman Empire. And sure enough, verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, he says, you are blessed. Remember that. Why are you blessed? How are you blessed? Jesus said, because great is your reward in heaven. All right, well, that is our treatment of this text for today. I hope that maybe we put a few of the pieces of the puzzle together. You can see the timeline of these things and how important it was for the early church to hear these words of encouragement from Peter at a time when they didn't really know that this was something that they needed to know. But the Holy Spirit through Peter was letting people know that God's eyes were on them, God's ears were trained to them, and that they were a blessed people. 
All right, well, that means it's time for us to stop and ask our most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I'm really glad I don't live back then. <laughs> you know, I'm really glad that Nero is not the, uh, not the ruler of the land in which I live. So, I mean, you know, that, that's, I feel for those folks, but I'm glad that I don't live back then. So what difference does any of that make to me? Well, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer it. Um, again, if you have your Bibles, flip over to John chapter 14 and verse 6, or again, follow along with us on the screen, either way is fine, or scroll on your phone, however you want to do that. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, a very uh, unambiguous statement. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he makes this on the back half of that. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's, that's what I call unequivocal language. <laughs> uh, he leaves no wiggle room whatsoever for someone to think that they might be able to get to heaven by some other means. Jesus says, I'm it. If you want to get to heaven, nobody gets to, he- to the Father. And where's the Father? The Father's in heaven. Nobody gets to the Father. Nobody gets to heaven but through me. Now, friends, again, that's not, if you were to just go out and broadcast that out of the world, wouldn't sound like a very nice statement, would it? Because people have different views on that. They have, well, no, I, I think this is how you might get to heaven. But Jesus said, there is no one getting to heaven but through me. Friends, when we teach what Jesus taught about the exclusivity of Jesus for salvation, that there is no other way to heaven but through him, when we share that, people will be offended. They will. When we preach that people are hopelessly under God's judgment, when we tell them that they are entirely powerless to fix themselves, that no amount of money, no amount of education, no amount of human reason, no amount of religious activity, none of that is going to get them where they want to go. When we tell them that Jesus is the one and only remedy for their sin problem and that all the other religions of the world are false, when we start talking like that, people will be offended. Friends, the Bible says that when we preach the message of the cross the way Jesus taught it, when we preach the message of the cross the way Peter declared it, that not only will sinners be offended, but they'll make us pay a price for preaching it. Jesus said, John chapter 15 and verse 20, Remember the words I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, you can guarantee that they will persecute you. Now, this is a verse that the modern church would love to eliminate from the Bible. Well, maybe we just ignore that. Maybe Jesus was just a little off that day. Didn't really mean what it was. Maybe there's some Greek uh, interpretation here that, that, that the English just doesn't render out quite right. Friends, and, and then we can be popular with the world. Friends, Jesus makes an unequivocal statement. He says, they will persecute you. Expect that the world will do the same to you as what they did to me. Or as Peter puts it, chapter 4, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. You say, okay, Gordon, I, I get it. Jesus is right. Preaching the exclusivity of Jesus will probably result in some pushback from folks. People probably will be offended. They won't take that very well. I get that. But what difference does any of this make to me? Well, the difference this makes to you and me is that we are to preach the message of Jesus just the way Peter did. And we are to preach the message of Jesus just the way Paul did. And we are to preach the message of Jesus the way he himself did. That's 
And that's the first difference it makes. And number two, if we do that, if we preach the exclusivity of Jesus for salvation, we need to be prepared to accept the suffering that will result. Paul writes this, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3, he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You say, hold, hold, hold on just a second, Gordon. You're talking all about this suffering. You're talking about how this is something that we can expect. Don't be surprised by it. I mean, are, are you saying that we ought to go out and look for it? Are you saying that we really ought to be out there yearning for it? We ought to try and find ways for people to, 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 to lash back out at us? Is that what you're saying? No, not at all. But what I am saying is that if you go out and tell people that Jesus is the one and only exclusive way to heaven, that you won't have to try and find somebody that will be offended, friends. Just by you declaring it, it will happen in and of itself. And this explains why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Now, over in Luke's gospel, he's reporting on this same text where Jesus is preaching this in the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Sermon on the Plain. And Luke's reporting on this in Luke chapter 6 and verse 23. And Luke says, Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. And then Luke adds the words, so, For so their fathers did to the prophets. Luke is reminding us here, he's quoting from Jesus, he's reminding us here that, that the pushback is not something new. That even looking back through the years of the prophets, that the, the Jewish people treated them the same way. That when God sent them his truth, that the people pushed back against that. For example, they whipped Jeremiah and threw him into a cistern. They stoned Zechariah to death. Jezebel chased Elijah across the countryside. They cut John the Baptist's head off. They stoned Stephen to death. They beat the apostle Paul unconscious. They crucified Peter upside down. And they nailed Jesus to a cross. Why? All because they told the truth. Friends, we live in a fallen world that is not built on God's view of things. And when we go out and we declare God's truth unequivocally, we don't have to look for and seek out persecution. It will find us. Jesus says, when they do the same to you, take heart. You are in great company. Um, let me show you one more verse that's in this section of Luke's gospel where Jesus himself is talking about persecution. Listen to what Jesus says, Luke chapter 6 and verse 26. But woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, friends, that seems to be a kind of a strange statement on its face value. Because don't we want people to speak well of us? I mean, I want to have a good reputation out in the community. I want for people to say nice things that, you know, Gordon's a good guy. And I want them to think that I'm some kind of a crazy person or that I don't like people or that I'm grumpy. I want, for them, I want to have a good reputation. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, again, look at the statement. Jesus says, woe to you. In other words, this is not a good thing when all men speak well of you. Yeah, you know what? There's going to come some times when we stand on this and some people, some people, at least some, are going to say, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't like that person. And they're going to have a problem with us, and they're going to attack our character and all those sorts of things. 
If I was to go onto the TV show The View, remember, y'all are probably familiar with that TV show The View, and tell them about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ for salvation and that all other religions in the world are false and are leading people toward a disaster in eternity, if I was to stand firm on that, uh, and that those people who were following those other religions were following, following a lie from Satan to d- deceive and mislead them. You think that they would just sit there quietly and nod their heads in agreement with that? No, absolutely not. I would get attacked. I would get excoriated. They would be deeply offended. Why? Because the true message of the cross offends. It just does. And so... While we want for people to think well of us, if we are preaching the word and we are sharing God's truth, some people, at least some people in our circles will say, you know what, I don't like you anymore. And friends, that's just a confirmation, perhaps, that we're telling the truth. The point is that the only way to remove the offense of the cross is to water down the true message. I was reading this past week about the lives of some of the early church fathers, and one fellow in particular that caught my attention was a guy by the name of Justin Martyr. I'm, I'm not sure uh, of the etching that we see here, whether or not that's true to what he looked like, but anyhow, in history and Christendom, this is the image that we have. Justin Martyr lived uh, between 100 and 165 A.D., or from those, that time range, and he was a philosopher, he was a theologian, he was also a devout follower of Christ. Um, He was what we consider an apologist. Um, Justin Martyr spent a great deal of effort trying to convince the Roman government that Christians were not enemies of the state. He talked about how the Christians are encouraged through their scriptures to obey the government and to be submitted to a government authorities. He talked about how Jesus himself instructed his followers to render to Caesar what is Caesar and to give to God what is God's. That is that these are tax-paying people. They're not against the government. He attempted through reason to debunk some of the crazy rumors circulating around that Christians were cannibals, that they ate flesh, and that they drank blood in their worship services. Um, And so he was trying to get the word out that that, that the things that you think are not really what is reality. And on one occasion, he even recounts to some Roman officials as a defense of Christianity, a story told by Marcus Aurelius, one of the great Roman generals. He's featured in the movie The Gladiator. Uh, A story that he told, Marcus Aurelius told, standing before the Senate, uh, the Roman Senate in his day, and talking about Christians. Here's what Justin Martyr reports that Marcus Aurelius said in that address. He said, and he was talking about this horde of enemies that had gathered around Marcus Aurelius's uh, soldiers. They were up in Germany, and here's what happened. And I quote, Therefore it is probable that those whom we support to be atheists, or whom we suppose to be atheists, have God as their ruling power. For having cast themselves on the ground, the Christians that were amongst them, that were part of Marcus Aurelius's contingent of soldiers, prayed not only for me, but also for the whole army as it stood, that we might be delivered from this present thirst and famine. For during five days of this siege of the enemy that had gathered around them, we had no water because there was none. For we were in the heart of Germany and in the enemy's territory. And simultaneously with their casting themselves on the ground and praying to God, he says, a God of whom I am ignorant, water poured from heaven upon us most refreshingly cool. But upon the enemies of Rome, it was a withering hail. 
Marcus is watching this happen, and he shows up in the Roman Senate and tells them, these guys got down on their knees, they prayed to their God, these Christians, and all this stuff's happened, and we were delivered from our enemies. He says, immediately we recognize the presence of God following on the prayer, a God unconquerable, listen to the testimony, sounds a lot like Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, a God unconquerable and indestructible. God showed a great man a great general, tremendous power and influence. Who was greater? The founding upon this then, let us pardon. He says, founding upon this then, let us pardon such Christians, get this, lest they pray for and obtain such a weapon against ourselves. <laughs> I'm going to read that one more time because y'all didn't catch it. <laughs> kind of old old uh, English, uh, the translation anyway. He says, uh, founding upon this, then let us pardon such as are Christians, lest they pray for and obtain such a weapon against ourselves. In other words, they may start praying against us, and then we'll get the withering hail or whatever it is that happens. All right, end of quote. So Justin was working. I thought it was more interesting. Maybe y'all didn't find it quite as funny, but anyhow. So Justin was working tirelessly, right, to try and convince the Roman government that Christians were not enemies of the state, that Christians were not bonkers, but that they were good citizens, they were contributing citizens, they were people who were trustworthy, and they brought a lot of value to the Roman Empire. What's interesting for our purposes today is despite his tireless efforts, Justin himself would end up being martyred for the faith. Hence his name, Justin Martyr. He, <coughs> excuse me, he lived in Rome... And the Roman prefect at the time, the prefect was a person who was kind of like the chief magistrate. He had oversight of the entire city of Rome. And so the chief magistrate of Rome got sideways with Justin, didn't like him, right? He heard Justin telling the truth, and he didn't like Justin. He wanted to do something to try and get rid of Justin. He had, but he had laws, he had to obey, and so he wanted to do this lawfully. And so the prefect issued a decree that every Roman citizen had to pray to some Greek idol. Well, he knew Justin wasn't going to do that, so he just went in, rounded up Justin and a couple of his, of his, uh, of his followers, and brought them in uh, before himself, and he said, look, I got some idols here, uh, the Roman prefect did, I got some idols here, I want for y'all to bow down, I want for you to pray to these idols. Rusticus was the guy's name. Um, Rusticus gave the order, he said, and I quote, having come together, offer sacrifice with one accord to the gods. Adding, unless you obey, unless you obey, you shall be mercilessly punished. Justin replied, through prayer, we can be saved on account of our Lord Jesus Christ, even when we have been punished, because this shall become to us salvation and confidence at the more fearful and universal judgment seat of our Lord and Savior. In other words, I'm not scared of you. You're not who I have to answer to. And then the other martyrs all said in chorus, do what you will, for we are Christians and we do not sacrifice to idols, end of quote. Rusticus then ordered that they be led off to be scourged, and then they had their heads cut off according to Roman law. Friends, if we want to live for Christ, if we want to represent Christ, if we want to proclaim Christ, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, 
Do not be surprised with the fiery trial when it comes. But remember Jesus' words, Matthew 5 and verse 12. We can rejoice and be glad, for our reward is great in heaven. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for these that have gone before us that stood the test of faith that gave a testimony that the world would reverberate through their culture, would reverberate through time. God, we ask that in similar ways, as we go from this place week in and week out, knowing your truth, and moments arrive where we are to open our mouth and share your timeless, unambivalent, unambiguous truth. God, that... uh, we would be strong, that we would say it as it is in kindness and in love, but that we would say it. Lord, as we gather around this table this morning, we are reminded of your shed blood and of your broken body. It is as you said, Lord, if they did it to me, we should not be surprised that they would do it to you also. God, we are your people. We are here for your service. Speak to us this morning. Encourage our hearts. Show us where you want us to be used. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.